All right, guys, you are locked on Falcons. I am your host, Aaron Freeman, and today is a week 16 Q&A where I will be answering listener and fan questions about the current state of the Atlanta Falcons. You are locked on Falcons, your daily podcast on the Atlanta Falcons, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. All right, guys, you guys know me. I am Aaron Freeman, founder of Falc Fans, the one of the longest-running Falcon fan sites on the interwebs. And today is another Q&A episode, a lot of good questions this week. Um, but at the top of the show, it might actually be one of our longer episodes, but at the top of the show, I, I do want to mention the Pro Football Focus Edge giveaway uh, that we do on this show that I did not mention on yesterday's show. But I will make for it up for make up for it for talking about it right now. We give away a Pro Football Focus Edge subscription. Included in that is player grades, snap counts, position rankings, fantasy projections, tools and charts, NFL draft coverage, uh, all that stuff and more. It's a forty dollar value that you can get for free. All you have to do is go to Locked On Falcons on iTunes, give a five star review, only five stars. Uh, leave your Twitter handle in that review. And um, you, uh, one random winner will be chosen at the end of each week among those that left reviews to win that Pro Football Focus Edge subscription. If you do not catch the great Pro Football Focus content uh, on the interwebs, you can still catch it on the Locked On Podcast Network by checking out Mike Renner every Wednesday on Locked On NFL with Matt Williamson, as well as Jeff Ratcliffe, the director of fantasy for Pro Football Focus, every Thursday on Locked On Fantasy Football with Vinny Iyer. All right, guys. Um, so a lot of a lot of good questions this week. It probably will be one of the longer ones we've had as of late. I, I'm not optimistic I will be able to keep it under 30 minutes as I have tried to do in recent weeks. But if for whatever reason it runs especially long, any questions that I ha- I do not answer on today's episode, I will get to later this week on LockedOnFalcons.com, our fan rag partnership website. And which every week I do the leftover mailbags. Any questions that I got that I wasn't able to answer on this episode, I will answer then. Um, but I, I, again, a lot of good questions this week, and I, I, I want to be able to answer them all. Uh, first up, we have Stephen Bounds at Stephen Bounds on Twitter. He asks, "Why are some fans in such a hurry to move on from the team's best quarterback ever? Gonna enjoy watching them wait another five years or more?" Um, I, I, look, I, I think. The answer to your question, Stephen, is I think it's the nature of the beast. It's a cliche, but it's true. Uh, quarterbacks get too much credit for the wins and too much blame for the losses. And I think, unfortunately for Matt Ryan, the one win he needs that to get fans off of his back has thus far eluded him. And, that, of course, I'm talking about a Super Bowl. And I think what ends up happening, we see this with Flacco, we've seen this with Eli, even when you're not a great quarterback – uh, if you win a Super Bowl, you know, they're, I always say their Super Bowls are magic because they, they seem to give you like a five-year grace period in terms of people believing that you're much better than what you actually are simply because you, you know, won one game. Obviously an important game, but not necessarily. It shouldn't overshadow 80-plus games in terms of judging a player's ability. Um, I think a part of it is the sort of always the grass is always greener mentality that I think you have with some parts of this fan base. And I think they sort of think, you know, if Matt Ryan can't get me the Super Bowl win that I think my favorite team deserves or or needs, then why not bring in somebody else who can? And I think that's an overly simplified outlook, but I think you often get that with fans. And and again, not to be a pretentious, condescending douche, 
when I say that, but I think fans just sort of ape the same things that they see on the radio or not see on the radio, see on TV at various networks or hear on the radio from players and coaches and analysts that I, I think tend to dumb down stuff like that just to make for easier sound bites on television. Um, and, and I think that's part of the reason why I do what I do, you know, and whether that's successfully or not, but I, I do feel obligated to do this podcast and, and run a website because I feel like the conversation around football needs to be elevated a little bit more. And the whole notion of like quarterback wins and, and Super Bowl rings. And that's all that we judge quarterbacks off of. I think it's kind of dumb, but um, you know, it has a place, but it, it's certainly not the, the way that we should overwhelmingly look at these things. So um, I think another reason is I don't think a lot of these people appreciate how valuable stability is at that position. Um, you look at a team like the Buccaneers. They won a Super Bowl 15 years ago, but since then they've had basically seven quarterbacks over the last 15 years. That it's it, somebody in that organization said, "Oh, this is my guy. This is the guy that's going to, you know, lead this team." And in that 15 year period, with seven different quarterbacks at the position, you know, basically an average of two a year, uh, or they change a guy every other year, um, or every third year, I guess, if my math is right. Um, who, who cares? Uh, <laughs> um, they've had two playoff appearances and four winning seasons in the last 15 years. Now, meanwhile, just in the last 10 years under Matt Ryan, the Falcons have had five um, playoff seat appearances. Hopefully, you know, in a couple of days, we can elevate that number to six. Um, and they've had six winning seasons. And, you know, you given the odds of winning a Super Bowl are really, really low in, in any given year, Real success in the NFL is, is, you know, it's similar to drafting good players. It's like the more at-bats you have, the more draft picks you have, the better the chances that you're going to find success drafting. Uh, and it's the same thing with winning. It's like the more times you get to the playoffs, the more success you have. In that, in that regard, the, the, more, the higher the odds that you're going to actually wind up winning that Super Bowl. You know, if you go to the playoffs five times, now, you know, if there's a 3% chance of winning the Super Bowl in any given year because of 31 and 32, you know, if you go to the playoffs five times, you know, if my middle school probability math that I'm maybe not remembering correctly, but that basically means there's a 15% chance that you're going to win a Super Bowl um, in, in that five-year period. Let me, let me rephrase that. Um, so, you know, that's much higher than the, you know, we go to the playoffs every six years type of probability. Um, and I don't think people appreciate that sort of stability and sort of take it for granted. And I think part of that has been due to the fact that over the last 40 or so years, the Falcons have had relative to most teams in the NFL or a lot of teams in the NFL had a lot of stability at the quarterback position outside of a couple of years here and there. They've gone from guys like Barkowski to Chris Miller to Jeff George to Chandler to Vic to Ryan with only a couple of hiccup years in between. Um, and so I think that causes people to take that stability for granted and think that it's a lot easier to find a good quarterback than it really is when there's really only for in reality, luck is the only reason why the Falcons have had that 40 year history while the bucks who for the most part in, in their 40 year existence have not had that sort of success with quarterbacks. They've had some decent quarterbacks, but the interesting thing is only once in the history of the entire organization, they started in 1976, the Bucks have had back-to-back years where they finished in the top 15 in, in scoring offense. And it was, you know, it was from 2000 to 2001, where I think one year they were sixth and the other year they were 15th. And they've never done that in any other time during that 40-year history outside of those two years. 
So it's and not to say that that's all because they haven't had great quarterback play, but certainly if you had good quarterback play, you should be able to have you know multiple instances where you at least an above average scoring team um, back to back years. So I, I think the point I'm trying to make is I think people take it for granted and think that oh like the Falcons can replace their quarterback and get a good quarterback that's better than Matt Ryan pretty easily because they've had success doing so and I think people underestimate how good Matt Ryan is and, and overestimate how easy it is to find a, a capable quarterback and meanwhile like there's just as much chance that the next 40 years of Falcons history is mirrors that of the Bucks than it does the last 40 years of, of Falcons history in terms of quality quarterback play. So that that's something to keep in mind. That's something I always keep in mind. I, I think other people should keep in mind before they go too crazy. Like you, I'm not selling people that, you know, if you don't love Matt Ryan as the Falcons quarterback, then fine. That's, that's your opinion. That's your prerogative. I'm not going to tell you to change your opinion on the, on the guy, but in terms of like where I will, you know, put my foot down is like when you start talking about, we need to move on from him. I'm like, okay, now you're just talking crazy. Like I'm, I'm, you know, I'm no, I don't necessarily agree with you if you think he's not a particularly great quarterback, but getting rid of him is just kind of dumb. All right, guys. Before we move on to the next question, I think you guys should know about this thing called holiday cash. You need it, and I know where to get it. My bookie is the place to score some serious cash for your sports predictions. Believe it or not, the holidays are just here, not around the corner. They're actually here among us. And while that means plenty of parties, gifts, and spending, it also means lots of football, basketball, and hockey where you can score big every day. Man up and play like the pros on game day. You can play money line, side, or total. And my bookie is your hookup for all your betting needs and offers super, super fast payouts when you win. Where you bet is just as important as who you're betting on. And if you want to make money betting the games, you got to go to mybookie.ag. They're the only site I recommend. I trust them. And you don't have to take my word for it. Go ahead and check them out for yourself. They have odds on every matchup, and the mobile site makes wagering on your smartphone a breeze. Join now, and mybookie will match your deposit with up to a 50% bonus. Use the promo code LOCKEDON to activate that offer. Visit mybookie.ag today. You play, you win, you get paid. All right, let's get back to it. Okay, where was I? Hmm. Okay, Patrick Houston at P Houston now asks: Sark has had two years of tape from Kyle Shanahan. You're okay. I'm sorry, I can't read. Sark has had two years of tape from the Kyle Shanahan years to study and learn formations and play calling. I want to hear about the first year play calling. Um. Okay, I don't know specifically what you're asking for. It, it seems like an overly general question, Patrick. So I'll, I'll answer it in the best way I can. I hope I hit where you want me to hit. I think, you know, in terms of first-year play call, I think there's certainly a learning curve. We've talked about this before in the past on this podcast. I think uh, there's a reason why every team's fan base or almost every team's fan base complains about play calling because I think it's a lot harder to perform at a high level in terms of playing calling at this level of competition, you know, the other team has the, you know, the defense has coaches and players too, that get paid a lot of money to do their jobs. Um, so it's really sort of an even thing. Um, you know, I guess with Sark, I guess where I sort of fall, and we talked about this a little bit yesterday with Matt Carroll on, on the recap episode is I'm a little disappointed in terms of how basic his offense is. And, you know, this is a run-based, play-action-based offense, and that's not inherently a bad thing. 
but it's kind of what you sort of expect from a team with a lesser quarterback. Um, and that was, you know, that was one of the knocks on Shanahan after 2015, which was it was his offense is really well is really well designed to make a bad quarterback like Brian Hoyer look good because you know the offense is predicated on running the football and, and the play action opening up things and making reads simpler and windows bigger. Um, but it would it definitely would work to hold back a much better quarterback like Matt Ryan. And obviously in 2016 we saw that sort of statement and belief was sort of thrown out the window due to Ryan's success. I think, you know, for me, it's the differences in sort of the concepts that Shanahan used, I thought were more cohesive and more complex than what Sark has shown this year. I feel like um, some of the concepts that Sark is not really getting, and I talked about this with Matt, and it's not necessarily the case right now as it was earlier this season, but it, it does... You know, it's like, why aren't you understanding this concept? Like, you don't need to be an experienced play caller to get that type of stuff. Uh, you know, and I refer to, you know, motioning out players and why you would motion, you know, the fullback out of the backfield. You don't just start him out lined up, split out wide. The goal isn't to have him lined up, split out wide. Um, it's to motion him out to dictate, you know, certain matchups and um, to reveal the coverage to, to aid your quarterback. And, and so that's a basic, a relatively basic concept that I think even a high school coach would be able to figure out. But for whatever reason, for, you know, various portions of the year, it didn't seem like Sark understood that. And now, even if you do understand it, that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, again, even if a high school coach understands that concept, doesn't mean that he can go into a game and implement it and integrate, you know, certain concepts in in making a a cohesive, well-organized offense. And, you know, we saw that, you know, that quote from two Falcon players midway through the season that Sark's offense was, you know, very disorganized. And my hope right now for Sark is that I think he can figure it out this offseason once he's able to go back to the drawing board and and look at the things that worked and look at the things that didn't work and and sort of be like, okay, now he can go through a fine-tooth comb for six months and figure out this offense um, based off of all the things that he's learned over over the last three, four months. And that essentially happened with Shanahan after his first year here. And so it's, so it's not without precedent. Um, you know, he also made adjustments to his own play calling that led to some of the reasons for success in, in 2016. Um, you know, I think one of the interesting things the Falcons will have to make a decision on is who they're going to use to replace Bush Hamdan at um, quarterback coach, who, as you may or may not be aware of, He's, he's, I think he's leaving to be the offensive coordinator at, at the University of Washington uh, after the season. And I think there's several paths the Falcons could go down. Well, I, I doubt a guy like Gary Kubiak would accept being a quarterback coach because it, it sounds like he wants to be a, a play caller. Um, I do think there's one pathway where the Falcons could go out and get an experienced NFL play caller, a la a Kubiak, who's run similar systems um, that can sort of basically be like a consultant and help Sark during the preparation um, during the week for game day. And, and also, you know, sort of secretly be a backup option uh, in case that the team has to move on from Sark midway through the 2018 season. Um, another is the, another option is to bring in somebody who Sark is very familiar with that can help be a bridge for Matt Ryan. Um, you know, that, hell that could be, you know, 
Matt Schaub or something like that. Or maybe, you know, maybe Matt Schaub would better fit the third category, which is promoting someone from within who has experience working with Matt Ryan and could be that bridge. Um, but I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what, what Quinn does in that instance. Um, so I hope that answers your question, Patrick. I don't, I don't feel like I did, but hopefully you got something out of that. Next question comes from Wes McDonald. Hey, Aaron. I'm a frequent listener of your podcast. I really enjoy it. I have a topic I'd be interested to get your opinion on that isn't talked about often on the podcast, special teams. Well, it's talked about more on this podcast than probably any other Falcons podcast. I'll say that much. Um, Wes goes on to say, wow, special teams isn't the sexy part of football. That's why we spend 95% of the time talking offense slash defense. I think it's been a crutch for the Falcons this year. We are last in the league in starting field position. Dead last. I'd like to hear your general thoughts on that. That Andre Roberts drives me crazy. Probably similar to how you feel about Dion and Sanu. <laughs> Maybe I overreact to his play. He's just been my player to hate on this year, but he rarely does anything positive. It seems loves taking out the end zone from five plus yards back, and I wouldn't be surprised if his longest punt return this year is for 15 yards. I'll stop my rant about Roberts, but nonetheless, worst starting field position in the league is a big crutch to the offense. I haven't been able to find where we rank in terms of opposing team starting field position, but I think. It would be an interesting stat. I would guess it's in the top half of the league, which would speak even more on how our defense has stepped up in the second half of this year. Uh, emphasis on second. Our coverage on kickoffs has seemed pretty terrible to me. I've been playing particular attention to it ever since Tyler Lockett ran all over us. He must have averaged 35 to 40 yards on the kickoffs in that Seahawks game. Sorry for the long question and commentary, but we'd love to hear your comments on our special teams play this year. Uh, I think the average starting field position is a very overrated and misleading stat. Surprise, surprise. I, I think the difference between the number one team in terms of average starting field position and the last team, which is the Falcons, is basically seven yards. And I think the, this notion that those seven yards are super meaningful yards, I think is is not true at all. Now, when you look at the number of drives Um, The Falcons have had starting inside their own 15-yard line. They've had 30 of those drives this year, which is the ninth highest in the league. But in terms of the yards generated on those drives, which is about 44 per drive, that's the fourth best in the league. Uh, If you look at the percentage of those drives that end in a score, 40%, that's the third best in the league. And then you look at the percentage of those drives that end in the touchdown, about 27%, that's the best mark in the league, just on those drives that start inside the 15. And so whether you set the parameters of whether it's 10 yards at their own inside their own 10, inside their own 20, inside their own 25, the numbers are pretty much identical where the Falcons are near or at the top of the league in terms of yards, scores, touchdowns, etc. So it's not really determined relative to other NFL teams. The Falcons are really good at, you know, moving the football and getting points whether they're backed up or not. So I, you know, I'm just struggling to understand why the poor field position, why starting at your own 26 versus your own 28, which is around league average, um, 28, 29, is that meaningful a stat. Um, As to the average starting position for opposing teams that you asked for, it's the 30-yard line, which is the third, quote-unquote, best starting field position. So it means opposing teams have the third best starting field position against the Falcons. But again, I don't think that's meaningful because, you know, the last place team in the league in terms of worst starting average field position is the Cowboys. The difference is five yards. Like, again, I, it, I don't think 
like over the course of the 175 to 180 drives over the course of a season, the average starting field position all sort of jumbles into one. And while I, I, I don't want anybody to take it as me saying like field position doesn't matter, like field position does matter. Like, particularly when it comes to really good field position. Like, if you're starting a drive at your own 45, that's a huge boost to the offense. Because that's basically, like, three play, three to five plays that you don't have to make on your on your drive. And you're basically starting halfway through your, your series. Um, but I don't think starting inside your own 10 or your, inside your own 15 is as detrimental as people are making it out to be. At least for the Falcons. Now, maybe to a team like the Browns, it's a huge issue. But not to the Falcons. And like, it, what's interesting to me is when you look at, you know, to, sorry to go hard on a tangent here um, in terms of special teams, but I think what's interesting to me when you look at the Falcons, where, regardless of the parameters that you set when you go to Pro Football Reference and, and look at their drive stats, the Falcons on a per drive basis are really efficient offensively. They're really typically in most levels, particularly when you're measuring by field position, they're really effective. Um, and they're typically among the best teams in the league. The only real instances where you look at those numbers, those drive stats, and see a bad or a, an underwhelming Falcons offense is when the parameters are dealing with looking at the Falcons in the second halves of games, right? Like, to me, the real issues with the Falcons are their Achilles heel is not, their crutch isn't field position, but it's rather that they struggle in the second halves of games. And the other issue is they don't have as many possessions as other teams do, right? When you look at their average number of possessions per game, they're averaging 1.2 less possessions per game than the average NFL team. Not the best team, the average NFL team. And that doesn't seem like a lot, but when you factor in that they're averaging about two points, slightly more than two points per drive, points per drive, that amounts to about 2.6 nearly a field goal's worth of points that the Falcons are losing simply every single week, simply because they're not getting as many possessions as other teams are. So teams are successfully able to keep play keep away and limit the Falcons' scoring potential. Um, so again, there's basically, if the Falcons were getting the average number of possessions, they would be scoring almost three points better than what they are, which would certainly move them up you know, to a certain higher level than 15th best scoring offense in the league. Um, and you know, I think a lot of people would say, well, uh, you know, the reason why the Falcons aren't getting many possessions, and I've argued this before on the, on the podcast as well, is because the defense is not getting enough stops and the defense isn't getting off the field. And while it, the defense has given up their fair share of long drives, um, I looked up the numbers cause I wanted to confirm this before the Falcons have had 11 drives you know, against them that have been for six minutes this year, for six or more minutes this year, which is tied for the 10th highest in the league, right? So, yes, they have given up a lot of long drives, but it's not an egregious amount compared to, you know, half the league has given up 10 or more. It's in double digits in that category. And the number one team is the Bears, in fact, with 17 of those long drives. So, like, again, while the defense does do need to do a better job of getting off the field and limiting these drives, and you do, you will see a strong correlation between the best defenses in the league and the limited numbers of long drives where Carolina, Jacksonville, New Orleans, Philly, Miami, Houston, and Baltimore are the, the top seven teams in that category in terms of the least number of long drives that they've given up. 
they need to do a better job, certainly. It's not all on the on the defense. I think part of it we do have to factor in that a big part of why the Falcons don't have as many possessions is because their offense tends to maintain possession for a long time. I think they're either number one or number two in the average length of time that they possess the ball, which is over three minutes. And I think, you know, because the offense is predicated on running the football and they have a limited explosiveness, they do tend to rely on some of these longer drives in order to move the ball down the field. And while I think, you know, I can't remember exactly where they rank, but I think there's somewhere in that 10 to 12 range in terms of the number of explosive plays that they've had this year, that number is somewhat padded by the two games against the Bucks, where they had 16 plays of 20-plus yards. Outside those two games, they've averaged about 3.6 20-plus yards per game, which is on par with in terms of explosiveness as teams like Buffalo and Cleveland. Right, and I, I think that's that's what's interesting to me. That really stands out. Where Buffalo, who for at least part of the season, arguably had the worst, um, you know, wide receiver core in the league, and Cleveland, who not even arguably has the worst quarterback situation in the league. So it, that's really been for at least thirteen games this season. The Falcons have been as explosive as those two teams who have real personnel issues in terms of their explosiveness. Now, you know, this will lend credence to those people that sort of believe that the Falcons' issues are more personnel-related. I don't think they are. Clearly, 2016 tells us that that's not the case. But um, I do think um, when you look at the explosiveness of this team, um, in the games where the Falcons get five or more 20-plus yard plays, and five is usually that number that is a good number for a team to hit, um, they're 5-1 and one this year. Right. And in those six games, they average about twenty five point seven points per game. Now, in their other nine games, obviously, their record is four and five and they average about nineteen point seven yards per game. I mean, nineteen point seven points per game. So you're getting a touchdown difference just because of getting a couple of big plays here or there. So, like, again, I think people are focused on this average starting field position. I think it's a red herring. I don't think it's as big a deal as people make it out to be. Like, again, you can be mad at Andre Roberts if you want to be. I don't have a problem with that. But acting like Andre Roberts is debilitating this offense in any significant way, I think is not true at all. I think what's debilitating this offense is that they can't, they can't, they're not good in the second halves of games. They don't have as many opportunities to score points as, as they should. And they're not as explosive as they as ideally they want to be, right? And you know Andre Roberts and, the, and and you know this goes into the sort of the conversation about drops, and this is one of the reasons why I don't think drops are as big a deal. Although one of the things I will try to go back and look at, you know, next week or the week after, is to look at how many drops have been sort of would have been explosive plays that the Falcons didn't have because of drops this season. And so that may change my opinion and be like, okay, maybe drops are a bigger deal than I think, you know, looking at the raw numbers and saying, oh, we had 28 or or however many number of drops. That's a huge issue. Now, if like nine of those drops are potential 20 plus yard plays, that would be a significant number to me, right? If if, if it's higher than that, then, but if it's like three, which I'm, I'm sure it's not that low, but that's where the drops matter. 
not necessarily like, oh, they have so many drop passes. It's like these specific instances, like that Marvin Hall drop, I think would have been a, a like a 23-yard gain or something like that. Uh, the Julio non-touchdown catch against the Panther, that's a big deal. So it, it, those are the types of plays where it's like those are when drops matter. But in terms of like being the number one, like who cares, you know? Don't drop the 40-yard bombs. You know, you can drop the the, the 10-yard throws all you want. Who cares? Um, So, like, again, I I think going back to it, like, people are caught up on the wrong things. Explosiveness, not being able to score in the second half, and not having enough opportunities, at least from a statistical standpoint, to me, are the significant things that we're looking at from the offensive in terms of why they're not performing at the level that they need to be performing at. And, And then, you know, the tape, you know, when we're talking about concepts and play calling and all that type of stuff, and, and that's more complicated. But the stats clearly show us that those three areas are areas where the Falcons need to have significant growth next year to get their offense back on track. Maybe we're inching on the offseason, uh, or maybe this Falcon team will be able to extend their season pretty much further. But in the event that they do, you guys may want to get a jump on the offseason talk by checking out Locked On NFL Draft with Trevor Sikama and John Ledyard, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, wherever podcasts can be found. All right, we're we're hitting that 30-minute mark. So, again, I told you this was going to be a long one. Uh, this is the last one, so, you know, good. Uh, it comes from Andy at Mave2124. It's a long one. He asked multiple questions. He, he, he gave a little bit of a rant on officiating. I probably, in order not to drag this thing out to two hours, I, I probably won't go into that. Maybe I'll save that one for the, the leftover mailbag uh, a response to you, Andy, on that one. So he asks, uh, as for an all-22 question, I want to know what coverage was in effect on Ken's touchdown. On TV, it looked like he burned true, but I know oftentimes it may be a coverage brush by someone else. It is a shame because it seemed like the defense played a decent game and true is trash talk will continue from some corners of Falcons Twitter. You don't talk about special teams in this game. I thought special team was only okay. I always feel both the defense and special teams has to play well in, in a game where the offense, especially the running game, is struggling so much. Not excited about Roberts' player coverage. You definitely need to go get a kick returner whose job will be to take a knee in the end zone 95% of the time. Uh, Roberts is making me miss the play of fair catch Franks. Definitely can let Devin Fuller, Hardy, and another rookie compete for the job next year. No need to invest any free agent in the position. Coverage teams also looked so-so. Whatever Armstrong needs to improve it, he needs to get it next year. Manti Teo looked like a man possessed jumping the A-gap on runs, especially against Devin Coleman, who messed up on those plays. What are your thoughts on the goal line run without a fullback, Coleman, or Poe? Um, Poe? Why can't I say that? I thought it was odd. I understand the problems we had with only one tight end active, but the wide receivers are not able to step up and help Ryan. It was a snowball that kept going downhill, but they could not get open or the O-line could not give them him enough time. Maybe there is something I am missing, but why does it seem Julio is held out on many third down plays? I believe he should always be on the field, even if the ball isn't going to him as he affects coverages. It may be the fan of me and not factual, but I feel like I've seen too many instances of Julio being tugged by wide receiver coach Morris to stay on the sidelines, and I am lost to as to why. I figure there must be something I need. I do not know. After the season, Turbo needs to run, not walk to Jimmy G, and Jimmy GQ, and Shanny in San Francisco. He is not going to get run here. Sark just doesn't know how to scheme him open. He will have to look 
at a cheap replacement for speed wide receiver and give Hardy a chance to earn a spot as Sanu part two at the third wide receiver. Look forward to hearing from you on the pod, Andy. Um, a lot of questions, Andy. Uh, I'll try to hit all of them. As for the all 22 question about the Ginn touchdown, I think that was on Rico. Uh, it looked like the Falcons were supposed to be in cover one man, but for whatever reason, when Allen lined up in the middle of the field, he bailed on the middle of the field and, and, and like he was playing cover two. I think, the reason why I think, you know, there's a perception that when you play cover one, the guy just parks himself in the middle of the field. That's not often the case when the saints were in a three by one sets with, with three receivers lined up on the left side of the field. Um, typically the deep safety in those situations playing cover one is going to shade to that side of the field uh, because it's much more likely that the, the ball is going to go over there and, and those guys are going to need a little bit more help in the deep half. But the problem is you can't immediately abandon the middle of the field you're supposed to quote-unquote shade over there, not necessarily just run to that side of the field. And that's basically what Rico did in that play. So I don't think it was Trufant's fault. I think he got hung out to dry by his safety. Um, and it, it's weird because Rico usually doesn't make those types of mistakes. Like, yeah, that's that's what's frustrating about it because it's like, why? Though? Like, that's probably never happened in the last three years. Like, that's probably the first time that's really happened where we can literally look at that play and be like, what the heck is Rico doing on that play? You know? And so that's what's weird about it. Um, as for special teams question, you know, going off what I said to Wes, I don't think field position is a huge factor. Um, I think part of the reason, again, not to say that field position doesn't matter, but I don't think it's a huge, huge issue in today's NFL because I said this during the offseason – I think the NFL rules make it so that, as you said, Andy, just take a knee. Anytime the ball goes in the end zone, just take a knee. Unless you're the best kickoff returner in the league, unless you're Tyreek Hill, unless you're Farrell Cooper, unless you're Cordero Patterson, and Andre Roberts is definitely not that, and the chances that we find the next one of those guys is probably pretty low, just take a knee. There's no reason. Just take the ball to 25 and let's get going. Trying to, you know, trying to get this big play on the kickoff that only happens on, like, what what was the number I quoted on a previous episode? Like three three to five percent of the time. Like it's not worth it. Just take the knee. Um, and I, I also think punt returns aren't as meaningful as they once were because the punting quality, the quality of punters in the league is so good now that when you actually look at the data, and I haven't checked it this year, but I know over the last like five or six years, it's steadily trended downward where the number of times, number of returns, punt returns there are, is goes lower and lower each year. Where I think the number is like, I, I'm, no, I don't want to even guess at the number. Um, but it's like, like it's it, return specialist is not a valuable position today as it was years ago, right? Where those sort of, being able to flip the field position could be a huge deal. And it was, it paid you because the quality of offenses and defenses was less, you know, that I think it, it behooved teams to have maximize their return ability. I think what smart teams have done and the Falcons have failed to do this the last couple of years in particular is I think smart teams have basically said, you know what? We don't care about our kickoff returner. Now we'll, we're, we do care about a punt returner because there are going to be more opportunities for a punt returner to impact the game because, again, there's going to be more opportunities for him to return than a kickoff returner, where a kicker returner, again, should just take a knee 95% of the time. Um, I think what ends up happening is a lot of teams put 
starters and, and high value players on punts. You see this, you know, guys like Tyler Lockett, Adoree Jackson, Travis Benjamin, McCaffrey, Tariq Cohen, Antonio Brown are some of the guys around the league that are punt returners, right? Edelman was before he got hurt. Amendola has basically replaced him in New England. Um, and it's not to say that you should never draft returners, but you should draft guys that have offensive, or in the case of a guy like Adoree Jackson, defensive value, and then on top of that have return potential like a McCaffrey, like McCaffrey and Cohen are key parts of their offense, right? And whether they're returning kicks or punts wouldn't matter. They'd still be key parts of their offense. Just, you know, and obviously Antonio Brown is, is a big part of the Steelers offense. Um, and I think what ends up happening is you need to draft guys. If you're going to draft a returner, you need to draft a guy that you feel like, whether it's either in year one or year two, is going to be a starting wide receiver. It's going to be your third wide receiver. It's going to be your, in the case of a Tariq Cohen, your change of pace running back, right? You need a guy that's going to, it doesn't require him to be a great return specialist in order for him to be active on game days and to make your roster. You look at a guy like Farrell Cooper, great, has had an outstanding year, deservedly earned the Pro Bowl bid this year. But guess what? Farrell Cooper, I don't know exactly where his position is on the Rams depth chart, but I think he's like the fifth receiver after, you know, he might be ahead of Tavon Austin, but he's either the fourth or fifth receiver after Cup Woods and Sammy Watkins. I think he's the fifth receiver. Um, The issue with Farrell Cooper he's going to deal with is if for whatever reason, whether it's fumbles, whether it's injury, whether it's just down struggling, if Two years from now, when he if he's having a bad year as a return specialist and he's still the fifth receiver on the team, he's going to be very expendable at that point because all of a sudden he loses value if he's not a great return specialist. You want to have guys that will not lose value regardless of how good a return specialist there. That's the case with Cohen. That's the case, obviously, with Antonio Brown, Tyler Lockett, Travis Benjamin as well. So it's one of those things where I think the Falcons have made mistakes, particularly with drafting a guy like Devin Fuller, in thinking, oh, well, if he doesn't have return value, then he doesn't make the team. And that's one of the reasons why this offseason, when we signed Andre Roberts, I was not a big fan of the signing. I eventually went around to it because I expected, oh, Andre Roberts is going to be a contributor on offense, but he's, what, played like nine snaps on offense this year? And it's like, of course, it's easy to be like Andre Roberts stinks because he's not even... You know, his success and failure is based entirely off his return ability. The Falcons should have done, again, revisionist history, um, hindsight, they should have put Taylor Gabriel there. And you can bring in guys like Reggie Davis and and Marvin Hall and Nick Williams and, and Justin Hardy and whoever else to push him and potentially take the job from him. And if they do, great. If they don't, then you still got a decent guy um there. And so I think that's basically what the Falcons need to do. Like you know, if Gabriel's gone, which I agree with you, Andy, there's a very high probability that he's going to leave because if I was Taylor Gabriel, I'd be like, I'm getting the heck out of Atlanta because this team has no clue how to use me. Um, you know, every week I see a deep post where he's open and Matt Ryan doesn't throw the football. That's not on Sark, but, you know, the other the other 98% of the stuff is, is on Sark. But, like, come on, man. Like, you could tell by, like, I don't know. I'll, I'll save that for another podcast. But it is one of those things where it's like next year, I think if Marvin Hall's going to, if Hardy, as you say, Andy, if Hardy's going to be the number three, then Marvin Hall 
is likely to be the fourth receiver, right? And I know because of his recent drop, a lot of people are like, no, not Marvin Hall. But Marvin Hall has, has Taylor Gabriel-like skill set. Hopefully, next year, Sark will learn how to use it. Make Marvin Hall your primary punt returner. If not him, then then make Justin Hardy. Hell, make Julio and, and Muhammad Sanu. Or put Tevin Coleman back there. Who cares? Like, you know, Robert Alford, he's, he's got return skills. Like, put somebody back there that it doesn't matter whether or not they are a good returner or not. They can still keep their job. And then bring in undrafted guys. Bring back Reggie Davis. And if he wins the job, great. It, it bring in a bunch of undrafted guys that can push him for time. Get some guys for real cheap off the street to bring in competition. That should be what the Falcons do with the return specialist. But I know there's going to be a lot of people like, oh, Andre Roberts thinks so. we got to go out and get a great return specialist. No, we don't. We just need to put a body back there. It is the, like, again, going back, circling back to what I said, and I'll move on to your next question after this, Andy. But, like, it's one, like, in terms of the hierarchy of what you need to invest in that position, I think it's the 53rd spot on your roster, 52 and 53, right? I would much rather spend $3 million a year on a great long snapper than I would on a, on a great return specialist. And I, that sounds crazy to people, and it, I'm being a little bit hyperbolic because, you know, I would only spend $2.6 million on a great long snapper. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, I'm just saying, like, it, it's not – like, if you have a bad long snapper, your, your team is going to be awful, Right. If you have a bad returner, like who cares? He's not gonna. It's not gonna matter on kickoffs, and as long as he's not muffing every other kick on punts, like if he's just getting five yards, who cares? Just keep it moving, you know. Sorry. So we 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 talked a lot, quite a bit about special teams on today's episode. So don't don't let anybody tell you that you didn't. Um, as for Manti Teo, I think it was a variety of players. I, you know, I didn't go back and look at every single play, but I remember making notes of him. Um, when I watched the, the film the other day, um, it seemed like multiple offensive linemen struggled. You know, I, I think there were instances where Schweitzer, Schweitzer got beat. There was instances where Schrader got beat. There was instances where Mack got beat as well. You know, Manti Teo looked like a man possessed, and uh, that's unfortunately. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there was a Derek Coleman play in there because Derek Coleman did not play well, as has been often the case this season. Uh, you know, I, I have a I have a rule about drafting fullbacks, but I, I think I might make an exception this year if, if the right guy comes across. You know, I'm looking at I'm looking at that Jalen Samuels kid who's not a real fullback, but is more like a Delaney Walker type of H back. He reminds me a lot of Delaney Walker during his early days in in, in San Francisco. Maybe not as good as a blocker, but uh, yeah. Anyway, we'll talk about that in the off season. Um, as for Poe not being on the goal line, my guess is that the team thought by spreading out the field that they would the Saints would soften their box. Obviously, it didn't work out. Uh, you know, I, you know that's the best guess I can have. Obviously, you know you can take that explanation or leave it. Whether that's a good explanation or a good reason for it, but uh, yeah, I, I think now at this point in time. The vast majority of plays lined up inside the two-yard line need to include a certain defensive tackle by the name of Don Terry Poe. Um, lesson, hopefully, has been learned. So we won't see that mistake made ever again in, in 2017 and hopefully in 2018. As for Julio snaps, um, I I don't think they're as 
I think that's a more of a perception issue than reality. Like I, I went and looked it up, and when you throw out the games where it's obviously an injury prevents him from playing a significant portion or the entirety of the game, this season, in, in this case, this year, it's been the Buffalo game is the one game that you would throw out. He's played about 80% of the offensive snaps this year. And you go back to 2014 and 2015, the two years and recent years where he was his healthiest, you know, 2016, he was in and out of the lineup. I think he played about 85% of the snaps in 2014 and 2015. So that, you know, that 5% difference is like three snaps a game around that. So it's not, again, I don't, I don't think he's missing as much time as you're perceiving it as in reality. Um, but I think part of the reason why the perception seems a little bit more heightened is sort of like I think this offense has sort of regressed a little bit in being a little bit too Julio centric as of late. You know, outside of that, you know, two games over the last half of the season, you know, the first Saints game and the Tampa Bay game, Sanu has basically been averaging about three catches and 30 yards over the last eight games outside of those two games. We know Hardy's big, quote unquote, big performance was a two catch. 33-yard game for a touchdown two weeks ago. You know, we already talked about how Gabriel's been marginalized, and, and Hooper's production is basically the same as Sanu's, but it it's limited because he's dropping more passes. So it, I think part of the reason is the Falcons feel the sting of Julio being on the sideline a lot more, particularly in comparison to 2016, where I think they were able to insert Gabriel and, and Aldrick Robinson as a replacement whenever Julio needed a breather for those 15% of plays. Um, and get just you know, obviously not just as much out of those two guys as they got out of Julio, but certainly did get quite a bit out of those two guys. We saw that in the Rams game. We saw that in the 49ers game last year where you would you couldn't even tell that both the teams starting wide receivers were out of the lineup in those two games. Um, you know, maybe part of the explanation may be that he's not as healthy as we've been led to believe. And so the, ex- the few extra snaps that he's not seeing on Sunday is to try to keep him a little bit fresher than normally they would be trying if he was, you know, closer to 90% or whatever we a player is supposed to be, you know, at week 16 of a regular season. Now, I don't know. I don't, I'm not going to put too much stock in that. You know, my, my perception is Julio is always more hurt than the team leads us to think he is. Um, you know, the dude's a Ferrari and the maintenance on, on the, um, is pretty high, but um, I'm not going to necessarily be like, this is proof that, you know, I don't know. I'm just speculating here. Um, so, like, I, I think it's more of a perception thing than a reality thing, but I, I do think there's reasons why you perceive Julio missing more time because I think the team, that his absence is felt, as of late, has been felt a little bit more than we're, we, at least in recent years, are over the last two years, we've come to think and expect. All right, guys, that's it. All the great questions. Um, a little bit of a longer Q&A, but I thought some of these questions were, you know, Andy asked like 6,000 questions. No shade meant Andy in that. But I thought some of these questions were definitely good ones that provided a little bit more in-depth. Any additional questions that I received from this point on as you guys hear them uh, this episode – I am more than willing to answer on LockedOnFalcons.com, our partnership website with FanRag Sports. Um, as we do every week on the leftovers, that will probably be posted on Saturday-ish. I hope I don't get too out of control this weekend with, with New Year's Eve. Uh, probably won't. No. 
Um, in the meantime, you can also go to Locked on Falcons, leave a comment. That's one way of getting your feedback and asking questions. You can go to falcfans.com and leave a comment. Those are the two sites where the podcast is posted daily. Uh, you can hit me up on Twitter, as uh, Stephen did. Um, the best way of getting a, directly a pot to where I know it's a Q&A type of question is sending it to Locked on Falcons uh, Twitter handle. Um, but you can also send it to my Twitter handle. That's at Falcfans. And um, just let me know it's podcast related. It's, an, it's a Q&A type of question in the tweet with 280 characters. You should have plenty of room to get that. But if your questions are like some of the questions we got today, like Wes and, and Andy, and they go well beyond 280 characters, then by all means, hit me up on Facebook. Uh, that's where Wes sent in his question. The page is Locked on Falcons. You can also do the email address where Andy sent in his multiple questions. That's LockedOnFalcons at mail.com. All right, guys, that's it. Uh, hopefully, we, we will be back. Not hopefully. The plan is we'll be back tomorrow with our preview episode, our crossover podcast with Locked on pa- Pack. Oh, wow, I can't. Why can't I say the, the word Panthers? Locked on Panthers host Bill Rossetti and uh, the preview of this upcoming matchup. Um, for all the marbles, you know, I'll, I'll be honest with you guys. I, I told somebody this earlier today. There's a part of me that's kind of just like, hey, eh, you know, if the season is over, there's a part of me that's just kind of like, yeah, uh, it's, this thing has worn me down. I'm just ready to move on to next year. Um, but th- I'm not saying that's a big part of me. That's a very small part of me. That's just, you know, it probably has something to do with doing daily podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> which won't stop in the off season. So my, I don't know why my brain is telling myself like, Oh, thank God the season is going to be over. Um, I do want to see this team make the seat, the, the playoffs. I, I want to make that clear. I do want to see it, there, but there is a small part of me that's just kind of like, eh, you know, so I say that because if the Falcons lose on Sunday, it'll be like, okay, well, I guess we're just moving on to the off season. And I probably won't be as belligerent about it as other people might be. Um, But I I, I do think given, you know, we looked at the schedule and we saw, oh, the easy part of the schedule was the first half of the season. Of course, the Falcons struggled in the first half and started to put it together in the second half. And to have that come up short, all because (laughs) they lost to the stinking Dolphins. Oh, man, that Dolphins game will live in infamy. Um it's just going to be it's going to be a tough pill to swallow. So yeah, to to play as well as they have down in the second half of the season since that Carolina Panther game, um, and you know what would be their record in the second half of the season like five and three or something like that, right? Am I am I wrong in that? Someone correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but yeah, they even if they lose on Sunday, it'll be like five and three, right? Um, so like. To come all that way to finish five and three, man, that's a tough pill as well. That's a tough pill as well. So hopefully the Falcons rise up. Uh, hopefully, you know, we can stay together in this brotherhood and in this sisterhood, um, as well as uh, you guys stay locked on. So. You are Locked On Falcons, your daily Atlanta Falcons podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team. Every day.